Welcome to Market Corner Conversations, sponsored by Foresight Health. This is where outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Market Corner Conversations is Foresight Health's regular podcast series. It explores the intricacies of market-driven health reform. We dig deep into the U.S. system's structural inefficiencies. We explain how its artificial economics and distorted business models rob the American people of the great health care they deserve. We identify and talk with innovative companies that are reinventing healthcare delivery by being better, faster, cheaper, and more customer-friendly. We have a terrific program today featuring Luigi Zangales, the Robert C. McCormick Distinguished Service Professor of Entrepreneurship and Finance at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. That is a mouthful. Uh, I met Luigi, I don't know, five or six years ago, right after he had written his uh, great book, A Capitalism for the People, and I moderated a program for the Chicago Council on Global Affairs where he presented. And quite honestly, his book changed the way I think about capitalism. It introduced this concept of being pro-market, separate and apart from being pro-business, and uh, really, as I said, fundamentally changed the way I think about things. Uh, so we're delighted to have Luigi here to explore uh, that topic. I also want to mention he has a terrific podcast, even better than Market Corner Conversations, called Capital Isn't, uh, and you can you can find that on the web. Uh, so Luigi, welcome to Market Corner Conversations. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Terrific. Well, why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about your background how your views developed, and how you ended up at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, of course, one of the great business schools in the world. Yeah. Uh, as my name and accent give away, I'm Italian. And uh, the, I grew up in Italy in the 70s. And uh, in Italy in the 70s, everybody was basically left-wing. And uh, because maybe my father was a very moderate, uh, uh, liberal in the European sense of the word, and I admire him greatly. I was a contrarian. So I grew up as a liberal in the European sense of the word uh, in Italy at the time where everybody was very leftist. And I always look up to America as the uh, dreamland, and I really wanted to come and study here. And so when I finished my undergraduate and uh, I did the military service, back then was mandatory, I, I came here exactly 30 years ago, almost to this day. and. Um, and I discover all the great things about America, and uh, including uh, the university system and uh, the opportunity to work at Chicago. But over the years, I also realized that uh, the United States was becoming more and more like Italy, and not necessarily for the good food and wine, but for the negative aspect. And, uh, and the, the book that they was so kind to mention was written actually in 2012, in which I sort of uh, make this uh, forecast uh, or implicit forecast that said, look, Italy is, uh, the United States is becoming more and more like Italy, and Italy ended up uh, a corrupt country in the hands of Berlusconi, um, there is a chance that the United States end up uh, in the hands of somebody like Berlusconi. And uh, I think is, uh, uh, I was more uh, uh, foresight than, I uh, more foresight than uh, I realized because uh, we ended up with Trump, which is uh, really quite similar in Berlusconi in many, many ways. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's dig into your, your theory about 
uh, what it means to be pro-market. Could you just talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, I think that uh, my background helped tremendously because uh, back in uh, in 1994 when uh, Berlusconi entered politics, he really took on in Italy uh, the flag of uh, being a free marketeer, being sort of uh, pro-American, be pro-competition, be pro-this, pro-that. And uh, at the other end, he was a businessman who was running a duopoly with the government because in, in, Ita- in Italy, TV is divided between uh, Berlusconi and, and state-owned TV. And uh, really was using very much uh, the power he had as prime minister or lead of the, 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 the first party uh, to enhance his business interests. And it was really kind of an integration between uh, his political activity and his business activity. And, and to me, that was really uh, offensive. And I always felt a true liberal in the European sense. And I thought that uh, Berlusconi was uh, uh, kind of the merchant in the temple uh, that was, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, dirtying uh, the ideals that I live in and recognize. And, and so that's when I started to develop this uh, important distinction that uh, is, is trivial from a uh, theoretical point of view, but is actually quite important from a practical point of view. It's a, Look, if you care about having a competitive market economy, you are not necessarily always on the side of, uh, of business. In fact, business people are very much in favor of free markets when they are entering into a new industry. The moment they are in a new industry, what they're trying to do is try to raise buyers to entries to make more money. And uh, I think it's not so terrible that they try to do that. What is terrible is that the government end up letting them do that or cooperate or, or so on and so forth. So I think that uh, uh, if you want to have a efficient and effective market economy, you have to have competition. And uh, in order to protect competition, you have more often than not fight against business people because business people... Uh, tend to protect their own industry and want less competition. Really interesting. So your first impressions of the United States from an economic perspective appear to have been very positive um, in terms of the country's ability, relatively speaking, to create level playing field, allow new entrants to come in, uh, potentially displace old entrants, um, and have the type of balanced uh, competitive environment that you describe. Um, so how has that changed uh, over the course of your 30 years here? So first of all, I can say from a personal experience how uh, level the playing field was. I, I remember that when I was applying for graduate school in the United States, um, I mentioned to a friend of mine that I applied to MIT and he said, oh, no, it's impossible to get into MIT even if you have a recommendation of the president of the United States because a friend of mine and a recommendation of the president did not get in. And uh, I did not have a recommendation of uh, the president, of course. I did not even have a recommendation of very prominent, important people. Uh, and I got in. And, and then I came here, and the thing that really uh, made me love America is nobody ever said, you're here to steal my job. 
and uh, everybody treated me with uh, um, basically respect and in a very uh, equal way, even if uh, I was a foreigner with a very thick accent and um, sometimes very different ideas. So I think that uh, the acceptance that I experience in the United States is fantastic. And, uh, and the fact that uh, an Italians coming from nowhere uh, with no connection and nothing can arrive to be uh, a professor at uh, a fantastic university like the University of Chicago is a testimony of the fact that uh, there are a lot of things that work in America. So I don't want to give the impression that uh, uh, everything is wrong. Uh, because it's not. And, and I think that there are some great institutions and universities are part of that. Um, but I think that over the 30 years that I've lived in the United States, I saw the world changing uh, under my eyes. And I always wonder to what extent was me discovering that uh, my dreamland was not as uh, uh, perfect as I imagined uh, when I was a little kid in, in Italy or the fact that uh, the place has changed. And, and I think there is a little bit of both, of course, but I think that the second is probably the most prominent one because now that I look at the data and, and I study, honestly, the United States has changed a lot in, in the last 30 years. And uh, as I said, not in the good direction. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's not a good thing, for example, that six out of the 10 wealthiest counties in America are in Washington, D.C. Um, yeah, n nothing real is produced in Washington, D.C. Right. So it's just rent-seeking. Right, so, right, and and right. it's become very profitable, absolutely. And actually, th this is one of the big differences historically. I think Americans don't fully appreciate, but when they come from Europe, uh, in America, the capitals, both the, 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 the federal capital, but also the state capitals, are by design in uh, places that are not that important. Uh, Springfield, I'm <laughs> sorry for uh, people living there, is not exactly the most important city of Illinois. And then you can go for Albany, Sacramento, and so on and so forth. This was not an accident. It was that by design. Right. Why? Because you want to keep the political center away from the economic center, not to be too distorted in that direction. And I think that uh, in the early part of... Uh, uh, the 20th century, even better in the 19th century, distance was a big factor that made uh, this uh, uh, risk, uh, uh, to help avoid this risk. Unfortunately, with the death of distance, uh, this uh, device is not enough. Yeah, not to mention Washington was a swamp in those days. Nobody Actually, did. still a swamp. <laughs> still a swamp, yeah. <laughs> Different kind of swamp, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, so this whole question of government capture is, is a pretty fascinating one. And uh, Luigi uh, does not claim to be an expert on healthcare, but I'm going to kind of uh, introduce uh, healthcare topics gingerly. But on the question of government capture, if you look at um, – the recorded contributions, uh, political contribution, uh, healthcare is half of the the top ten, and the pharmaceutical industry, which is number one, contributes more uh, than double the next highest industry. It's almost as though they believe they get a higher return walking the halls of Congress than they do in the marketplace, and that manifests itself through all kinds of. Uh, of strange behaviors uh, and you see it in the pricing of drugs and the limiting of markets and the ability to buy off competitors and so on. Um, 
Luigi, if you could just talk a little bit about government capture, how it creates uh, quasi-monopoly and monopsony um, positions and, and what that does to the, the competitive landscape because I think it's really important and then we'll, we'll dig into healthcare a little bit more specifically. Yeah, the, the original idea is actually due to uh, George Stigler who was a professor at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and, and won the Nobel Prize in, uh, in 1982. Um, I think that uh, it's very simple. Is We always think about regulation as a way to improve welfare, but uh, uh, very often regulation is designed by industry people with the industry in mind. And so uh, all too often end up uh, uh, actually, uh, first of all, blocking new entry because uh, the people who are never participating to the discussion about regulation are the new entrants because they're not there are like future generation in government policy. Are they all, always the one that get uh, cheated because they're not present at the bargaining table? Um, and second is uh, even the rules themselves tend to uh, make it easier for incumbents to make more profits. And uh, it's not saying that, uh, and I don't want to go in the direction of saying that all regulation is, is useless or bad because it's not true, but we have to be very aware that uh, even the best intention, in, in best intended regulation ends up being uh, distorted. Um, and, and sometimes the regulation is not best intended to begin with. So that's even worse. Yeah. You know, another uh, Nobel Prize winning University of Chicago uh, professor is Friedrich Hayek. And I remember listening to a podcast. Uh, well, actually, it was it wasn't even a podcast. It was a lecture, recorded lecture on the car uh, driving to Indiana. And um, Hayek was making uh, the case that 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 or debating the relative pros and cons of uh, market capitalism versus market socialism, which actually, in his era, the post World War II era, was a pretty vigorous debate. Um, Europe was in, in uh, shambles. Memory of the Great Depression was still fresh in everyone's mind. Um, you could even argue that fascism and communism were extreme reactions to unbridled capitalism. So uh, he came in an advocate for markets and an advocate for democracy. And the example he used was the price of tin. He said, you know, the price of tin goes up, free market economy. Um, uh, manufacturers find substitutes. Uh, they try to improve the manufacturing process. Some raise their prices, but you get back to equilibrium pretty quickly. Um, if you got market socialist society, uh, you need an army of, of central planners to figure out, well, why did the price of tin go up? What are all the uses of tin? What are the priorities of those uses? What are the prices we should charge for them? And then an enforcement mechanism. And his point was it was it gets really complicated pretty easily and it gets easy to make mistakes. So you end up with too many tin pots and not enough tin cans. Um, and as we were finishing up this lecture, I, I had this epiphany that he was, he was describing Medicare in the United States. We have a, an army of central planners that uh, in Baltimore that create these very complex um, – formularies to reimburse doctors and hospitals and others for uh, the services they provide. Uh, and 
it gets really complicated and it's easy to make mistakes. And at this point, I was driving into Indianapolis, which was building four new cardiac surgery centers at a time when the incidence of or the need for cardiac disease was actually decreasing because we'd come up with some effective drug treatments. So what's the reason for that long, long-winded story? Um, you know, my feeling is the marketplace is always smarter than the regulators. Um, can always outmaneuver whatever um, regulation gets put in place. And the more precise the regulation tends to be, the easier it is to, to game. And uh, we have that in healthcare uh, in abundance. Um, so, but what I wanted to do before we kind of get into some of the distortion is, is talk to you about regulation and our, our mutual friend, uh, Professor uh, Raghu Rajan, also at, at Booth School. Um, likes to say you need regulation, but it needs to be Goldilocks, you know, not too hot, not too cold, just just right so that the market um, responds to the right incentives, not the wrong incentives. Could you just talk a little bit about uh, the ability how – do, how do we get the right type of regulation so that market's efficient or function in the most efficient way and we get the level field competition that, that you described? This is the $100 trillion question, right? Uh, getting it right is, is very hard and depends on uh, a lot of circumstances. So I think it's not that easy to have all-encompassing statements for all the cases. But I think that uh, uh, the tension is uh, uh, we need to uh, have some accountability to the people at large for the regulation we introduce. Uh, in, in the book you mentioned... I say that uh, regulations should be simple, not because all solutions are simple, some solutions are very complex, but because the only real pressure from regulation comes from uh, the outrage of people. So uh, when the, there was like uh, too much pollution in the air, people in the 70s, people reacted and, and the EPA was created in part as a result of, of that. Um, and. Uh, so the demand uh, from uh, the, the legitimate demand uh, for regulation comes from the people at large, and uh, the only way to have some accountability to the people is to have regulation that is simple enough for the people to understand, and simple enough for the people to see when is not uh, respected. So in, in my book, I, I make the case and say, look. It might be that uh, the separation between investment banking and commercial banking is not uh, the first best from an economic point of view. If you're an economist, you can find a lot of more clever regulation that gets most of the benefits, uh, but uh, not with all the costs. However, from a political point of view, now you have a choice between a clean-cut uh, separation, easy to describe, easy to implement, easy to monitor, or you have uh, the mumbo-jumbo of the Volcker rule that is so complicated that enamel uh, <laughs> lawyers cannot say what, uh, what it means, and not surprisingly, has never been enforced yet and probably will never be enforced. And, and, and I have the greatest respect for Volcker himself, but I think that the Volcker rule was a, a uh, bad uh, uh, idea of Tim Geithner who was at the time uh, second, uh, Secretary Treasury of the Treasury, Secretary, yeah. yeah. And he was, uh, he understood that from a political point of view, people wanted the separation. The industry did not want that separation. And so he 
had the idea of using this uh, intuition of Volker, labeling Volker rule, because Volker is such a, an outstanding human being that how can you be against the Volker rule? And the, the, the Geithner interpretation of Volker rule was something that uh, will please the public because it sounds like Glass-Steagall, and it pleased the industry because it's not enforceable and will never be enforced. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and of course, the industry had some explaining to do, right? Uh, CDOs, synthetic CDOs, all of the all the debt and that wasn't accounted but for. But actually, yeah. the most important thing the industry should have explained is all the fraud that took place and right. the fact that nobody went to jail for that fraud. In fact, uh, you and I, Dave, ended up paying a lot for that fraud because, you know, all the banks were fine an enormous amount of money, and I imagine you own the S&P 500 in your retirement account, I do as well, and so indirectly, we end up financing all that crime, and nobody pay for it. Uh, Some people benefit, and they have nice uh, houses in Florida and Malibu, Uh, but... uh, Nobody went to jail. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, that that brings up two things that... um, that you were in favor of uh, that surprised me but makes sense within the larger context, which are class action lawsuits and whistleblowers. Maybe you could get into why we should look at those things in a beneficial and not necessarily a negative pejorative way the way most uh, business people do. Yeah, I think that uh, clearly if you have very strong enforcement of very aggressive regulation, you have paralysis. and uh, again, this comes from my experience in Italy, the, the more lax the enforcement is, the more you have to create aggressive regulation because you have to justify to the public you're doing something. And uh, so uh, if you were to introduce very effectively whistleblower and class action in a world with uh, super tight regulation, you're going to end have business paralysis. However, I think that with the right amount of regulation, i.e. a simple and and fairly coarse regulation, uh, having as a method of enforcement class action and uh, and whistleblower uh, gives more power to the people to enforce the rules. Because I think that the worst thing that I observe all over the place is big companies, uh, big lawyers, these big lawyers end up rotating their jobs between the regulators and the firms. And as a result, they never get uh, actually to be punished. And so regulation ends up being very strong with the weak and very weak with the strong. The beauty, in my view, of, uh, for example, class action is that level the playing field. this is very much in the spirit of uh, another Nobel Prize winner from the University of Chicago, Ronald Coase. And he said, look, in, in general, if you have a million, dollar, million one dollar claim, you don't get to be respected as if you have a million dollar claim. From an economic point of view, they are the same because they're the same claim. But the transaction cost of putting together a million one dollar claim is such that those claims don't get protected. And class action is a way to uh, reduce these transaction costs and by doing so, leaven the playing field and making the market more competitive. And that's the reason why I like it. Now, I'm not saying that all 
class action is right, and of course there are excesses and, and so on and so forth. But I think it's important to see the positive with, with the benefit. And, and actually, recently I discovered that uh, the origin of class action was actually in the context of civil rights. That one of the reasons why it was introduced is to make possible to enforce civil rights. So there is this spirit of freedom and equality that is embedded. And the whistleblower, I, I became a obsessed with uh, these whistleblower statues that uh, reward actually for people for blowing the whistle after another Italian scandal that was uh, Parmalat. I, I don't know if you remember, but in 2003, uh, this largest uh, milk company in Italy, it was Parmalat, uh, blew up uh, with a gigantic scandal in which not only uh, they do the bench of shenanigans like many other firms did in, in those days, but they falsify a $4 billion Cayman Island bank account in the most traditional form possible. And says, when you talk about derivatives, most people don't understand and they're so sophisticated. So you can understand to cheat with derivatives for $4 billion. But this one was done at the elementary school level. They cut the letterhead <laughs> of Bank of America, they posted on a different account, they faxed it to the auditors, and acted the auditors believe it, okay? So I said, look, somebody inside the firm knew that they were doing something deeply wrong. When you cut the letterhead of Bank of America, you paste it on something else, and you fax it, you knew you're doing something wrong, okay? And, uh, and I suspect that the CEO and CFO of uh, Palmer at the time were not doing the cutting and pasting. Somebody else was doing the job. Now, imagine that somebody else could get a huge reward to, explore, to ex expose that fraud. Mm -hmm. Then... Many people had to know, right? Exactly. Then that will stop right away and will stop in the best form because the prevention... It says, I will be afraid to, uh, to do anything illegal because my own employees will report me. Now, of course, if I live in a country like Italy where uh, breathing is illegal, then uh, having those uh, too strong an enforcement paralyzes business. So I understand that, that, that business is very much afraid. But when it comes to mega fraud or when it comes to mega environmental damage or when it comes to mega, mega fraud against the government, this stuff actually is very important. And, and then I started to study and I realized that actually there is a long tradition of uh, paying whistleblower in America. The first one, again, goes back to civil rights was Abraham Lincoln during the, uh, the Civil War. Uh, the supplier of guns and ammunitions and, and uh, uh, clothes to the army, uh, to the Union Army, were defrauding the Union Army, and the Union Army was losing. So I said, in order to win the Civil War, right. we need to have a good system and introduce a whistleblower, uh, not only a whistleblower protection program, but a reward for people blowing the whistle, and actually won the war. And... Uh, then was reintroduced in 1986 by Ronald Reagan uh, for fraud against the government. And it's been super effective in exposing major fraud against the government. So that's the reason why I think it's a very important uh, uh, statue 
in many businesses. And since you want to talk about healthcare, in healthcare in particular, because that's where the mega fraud against the government take place. <laughs> well, okay. Well, first off, on the Civil War, it's, it's uh, the word shoddy. Um, this was the name of the uniform material that uh, that the Union troops wore, and obviously it has come to mean <laughs> a terrible thing over time. But since you since you uh, kind of introduced healthcare there, uh, with, I, I, and I know you don't consider yourself an expert, but what uh, you are an expert in markets and economics and government capture and. Uh, Perverse incentives and bad behavior, and so on. What what are your observations about healthcare in America? So, let me start with one observation, which I think is is pretty damning. The United States spends between eighteen and nineteen percent of GDP in healthcare, with outcomes that are no better than most advanced countries, uh, and most advanced countries spend between ten and twelve percent of GDP. So there is no doubt that. Uh, a lot of money is wasted. There is an even better picture uh, that uh, a researcher developed looking at the changes over time uh, of uh, healthcare expenditure per capita and the changes in uh, uh, life expectancy. And basically, all developed countries are on a common trend. Uh, they get the same trade-off or bang for the buck in terms of dollar spent uh, versus uh, increase in life expectancy. The United States is on a much lower path. So they get much lower bang for the back. So there is an inefficiency that really uh, cries for help. Yeah, it's, uh, I believe um, the dysfunction of the American healthcare system dates back to the creation of, of Medicare and Medicaid in 1965. Um, the President Johnson at the time um, in order to placate the American Medical Association, agreed to two things. The first was cost plus reimbursement. So basically, we pay you for activity. It's called fee-for-service today. And the second, which is um, not quite as well known, and it's written into the legislation, is no governmental interference in medical decision-making. Well, the combination of those two, uh, which basically says as long as a doctor says something is necessary, uh, the government and, by extension, commercial insurance companies have to pay for it, um, just creates an enormous uh, loophole through which to push unnecessary treatments. And then we also have the, the gaming of the reimbursement. So people estimate as much as a third of American medical spending is, is wasted. Um, and I, I'm of the opinion that we won't fundamentally change the system and change the way we deliver care until we change the way that we pay for health care. And there are some encouraging signs uh, with, with new programs and how the market's adapting. Um, but as you kind of look at 50-plus years now of, of distorted um, incentives uh, and where we are in this waste and the lack of outcomes, uh, if you were advising, uh, well, not President Trump, but whoever the next occupant might be, um, what what might you what might you suggest just from a market perspective to try to get the get the right regulation get the right payment formularies uh, create you know keep the innovation going but i think that uh, at a very high level the solution is very simple at a low level is very complicated but at a high level is markets work when they are competitive and the big mistake that people make is to defend market uh, 
a market institution in situations where they're not competitive, and that brings the worst possible distortions. So I think that is ironic that the United States, and until President Trump, they were very much pro-free uh, trade, don't have free trade in pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, you can export a drug to Canada, you cannot re-import a drug from Canada. Uh, why? To protect the pharmaceutical industry profit and ability to extract higher margins from uh, the, basically, taxpayers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, good. Well, we, we, we can leave it there. Um, you know, our, our, our motto at uh, Foresight Health, it, it comes down to six words, which are outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. And in order to achieve all of those things, we need level playing fields, competitive markets, innovation to reign, um, companies that can innovate to, uh, to lose relevance and, and uh, potentially even go out of business. And to the extent we allow um, uh, bad behavior to get in the way of that process, we end up with a bigger and bigger problem. Yeah, and I think it's very important to keep separate two things, which of course are related but are, but are, are very distinct. One is uh, how much and how many people we cover. And I am on the side that some basic health rights should be for everybody in America. Uh, and then how do we sort of manage the healthcare system? And uh, unfortunately, the two things are being commingled, uh, but creating a lot of distortion. You. You went back to the distortion created uh, by, by Johnson. But actually, I learned uh, from the very uh, mouth of George Schultz that the very first distortion was created during World War II. Because the right. reason why... Price controls, uh, yeah. Yeah, the reason why we have uh, Medicare, m medical uh, insurance at the uh, job level is as a result of price control during World War II that uh, made people uh, introduce as a freebie uh, the medical uh, in insurance in order to attract uh, people to work and then became an entitlement and, and so on and so forth. And that was very difficult to change things fr from there. But the fact that uh, when you lose your job, you might lose also your medical coverage is crazy. It's crazy from a humane point of view. It's crazy from an economist point of view because you want to be able to search for the right job and not base on the right job on the level of medical care. Or, you know, when we don't cover people with pre-existing conditions that uh, getting sick can lead to bankruptcy. You know, you're trying to get well and why do we, you know, the leading cause of bankruptcy in the country. It, it's really remarkable that we've, we've come to this place. Um, I actually do believe that bottom-up in fact, I wrote a book called Market Versus Medicine that bottom up uh, evolutionary market-driven solutions within the proper regulatory framework um, with the proper payment mechanics are the way out of the, out of the Gordian knot. But we have to have the courage to say no to very, very strong vested interests. Uh, you know, it almost feels like Star Wars. You know, you got the, the medical empire and then you've got the federation. The empire is very strong, um, ruthless. And the Federation, disorganized but creative, and, and uh, uh, but they've got the force on their side, Luke Skywalker, Yoda, and, uh, um, you know, 
demand-driven change superhero results. So anyway, Luigi, thanks so much. This has been absolutely fascinating, and uh, I'm sure our audience uh, feels a little bit smarter about markets the way I did when I first met you uh, back in 2012. So thanks so much for being with us tonight. My pleasure. If you're frustrated with healthcare, if you want to understand how the system is reinventing itself through relentless bottom-up market-driven reform, please subscribe to our podcast at foresighthealth.com. Be a rebel with a cause. Help us fix American healthcare. Until next time, this is Dave Johnson. <laughs>